sometimes we just need to go back to be like, okay, well, like what works for me, you know? Like I can try to do that and it may work or it may be forced, but like, who am I? What are the strengths I bring to the table as a parent? What feels natural? What feels confident? What are my kids like? What's gonna work for us? Welcome back to Education, where it's all about raising passionate and committed Jewish children. My name is Yair Manchel, a parenting coach who mentors parents to deal with challenging situations with their children and to learn strategies and skills to help their children succeed. As a passionate Jewish educator with lots of experience as a formal and informal educator, whose whole goal of being an educator is to help children and teens develop a great relationship with Hashem and to have a great relationship with Torah, I am on the journey to find the best practices to do that as a parent because I believe that whether we are educators by profession or not, we are all Jewish educators, day in and day out in our own homes. We are educating our children on what it means to be a Jew, what it means to be a good person. You may have heard of Alex Fletcher from her amazing op-eds and mishpacha, her amazing movement she started in hashtag my orthodox life and the Faces of Orthodoxy account that she has, or her own podcast, Deep Meaningful Conversations. And if you know her, you know how real and genuine she is. Something that was so apparent throughout my conversation with her about parenting and Jewish education. Her realness is it what makes her so understanding of her children and what they need. And she knows when to pull back as a parent, which is so, so crucial, something that we discuss. What you may not know is that Alex was a formal educator herself for many years. And you'll get to hear about her experience in the field of Jewish education and why she eventually chose to leave the field and the amazing lessons she learned from being an educator that she brought into her own home and how she created her home into a safe place for her children to be able to talk about anything on their minds. This conversation was so refreshing and real, and I'm so excited to share it with you all. Without further ado, enjoy the episode. This week's guest is Mrs. Alexander Fletcher. Mrs. Fletcher is an educator, a speaker, a writer on Jewish contemporary issues, co-host of the Deep Meaningful Conversations podcast, and an active member of her community in Cleveland, Ohio. She's currently an op-ed columnist for Mishpacha magazine. She holds a master's in Jewish education from Azraeli and a bachelor's in English and communications from Stern College Women. You can find her writings at alexanderfletcher.com, which I'll include in the notes as well. I want to say a major thank you to you, uh, Mrs. Alexander Fletcher, Mrs. Fletcher, Alex, for taking the time today. Really, really appreciate it uh, to talk to education. Thank you so much. Really an honor to be here today. Amazing. So first things first, I know that you are, you've left education and we'll talk about that as well, but what, what inspired you in the first place to go into formal Jewish education? Sure. So as you said before, you know, I was an English major, English communications, um, definitely my focus is on PR. So I was also very, am very idealistic about the community, the Jewish community and wanting to contribute to it. And I've always been this way. I used to like read the Jewish observer from front to back, you know, as a kid. Really? And <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, seminary, of course, inspired me even more. And I spent a summer um, as an intern at H UK, that's the oh, Asia cool. Torah branch in, sure. yeah, in Hendon and in, in London. What brought you to London? That's so, because uh, you're not from. Well, it happens to me, my father's British and I do have huh. a British passport. Okay, so I remember cool. walking through the airport <laughs> with my British passport, being very proud of myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, a friend of mine from Stern, you know, knew what I was doing. And I, I explained how I wanted to like work in like the Jewish world, you know, with writing and I don't know, PR or something. And she said, actually, my brother runs HUK and is looking for an intern exactly in that really? oh, area. Cool. Yeah. Wow. So I went all by myself and um, basically I was sitting behind a desk and, you know, writing and editing their quarterly reports and, you know, doing their newsletter and, and things that I thought that I wanted to do. I also 
was doing partners in Torah and a little bit of, mm-hmm. you know, not for, not teaching, teaching, but, you know, Chavrusa sure. partner type of teaching there. And I just remember having this epiphany sitting at the desk, writing about the programming that they were doing. And in my mind, and I still remember, I had this thought, I don't want to be writing about these things. I want to be doing these things. Wow. That's great. And yeah, I mean, it didn't mean that I like wanted to go into Kiruv per se. I wasn't sure what it meant, but I knew that I wanted to pursue Jewish education formally. So at that point I was, I think a junior in CERN and I decided, you know what, I'm going to sign up for Israeli. I was able to start my, you know, graduate courses as a senior. Um, and you know, that, that was the decision. That's how I decided I wanted to go into Jewish education. Amazing. And, and what was that at that time? Like, what was that spark or what, what, like, what was your goal to going into Jewish education then? You know what? It's interesting. I, I think I was a little intimidated by it. I think I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia to a Balchua family. I think I went, I went when I'm at at NCSY, which was hugely transformative for me in terms of taking an ownership of my own learning. Oh, cool. But nice. I still felt like maybe I wasn't worthy. Maybe I didn't know enough. Maybe my mm-hmm. skills weren't high enough. You know, it's funny. <laughs> we talk about, you know, restoring Jewish education to, you know, its prestigious place these days is a struggle with people not going into Chana. Sure. I felt I almost wasn't worthy to go into Chana. Uh-huh. I think that was sort of holding It's ironic because you have that whole article, which we'll talk about that also. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. So I, I think I needed to build up my confidence um, that I could do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that that building up also my grit and over the years where, you know, I, I came in a little bit disadvantaged, as I said, my family actually became religious when I was 12. So I, right, right, I right. didn't have the same background that my friends had. And mm-hmm. I always worked very, very hard. As I said, Michal at seminary to get to where I wanted to get in my Jewish education. Sure. Um, and I just had to have that confidence that, you know what, you could do this. You have a lot to contribute. You can. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, and clearly you had a lot to contribute. I know that, you know, a lot of different things that you've been involved in. So I guess the next question is, what ended up, you know, happening that, uh, or when, yeah. I guess, or I guess you could say what was the reason or what inspired you to then leave the, leave the field of formal Jewish education? Sure. Well, if we don't, if we can backtrack just to, I guess, maybe give some context, like what sure. I did then once Please. I decided to get the degree. Um, so, you know, classic, I went to my graduation at CERN with a, with an engagement ring on my finger. What can I say? <laughs> yes, that happened to me. Um, but ended up, you know, finishing up my master's once I was married, we moved to Baltimore and I was looking for jobs and, um, I went, I'll share the story. I went to the base Yaakov there with my master's degree from Israeli, you know, and my undergraduate degree and a lot of money that was invested in my education. And I had an interview and I wanted to teach them with a Kodesh. Like I was really inspired. Like, this mm-hmm. is what I want to do. And um, I don't remember if they offered me an English job or a Lumidi Kodesh. I don't remember, but it was part-time because that's what it was. And they turned around and they offered me, this is many years ago. That's, I think it was like, I don't know, $15,000, $18,000 salary. <laughs> and I literally it's just really started, nice. yeah, I was laughing. Yeah, I just started laughing. You know, at the time, yes, full disclosure, my husband was learning in the culinary straw. And I was like, I'm a breadwinner here. You've got to be joking. <laughs> Plus totally. the fact that I have, you know, this education that cost me a fortune, you know? Right, right. Um, totally. I ended up going to, which is a community school in Baltimore, um, and was able, they were able, and I think this is part of the thing when we talk about education and, you know, being able to pay teachers, they were able to give me a full-time salary. So a full-time job, let me say it that way, with a full-time salary, where I was teaching throughout the day, middle school, um, Lumine Kodesh, as well as English. And mm-hmm. they're not, they offer English in the morning. So um, as well, it's all mixed up. So it didn't really matter. And I had a full teaching load and was able to, you know, have a livable right. salary and also deserve what I deserve based right, on my right. education. Sure. 
And I was there for 10 years. My husband ended up going to medical school halfway through that. So we came to Cleveland for residency. Many residents end up in Cleveland mm-hmm. and, and wound up in a more right, the most right-wing school here teaching high school English. And I loved it and had probably one of my best teaching experiences teaching in that school and moved essentially decided once my husband finished residency, I'm done. Why? Now I'm getting to your question. Mm-hmm. When you teach high school level English, there's tremendous amount of grading. And I will say that the same thing applies to high school level Lamude Kodesh. The prep and the grading is the killer. I can relate. I can totally relate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as my kids got older and as our family grew, the more exhausted I would be at nighttime. <laughs> you know, it's not like you put your kids to sleep at seven o'clock and you've got your night break. <laughs> sure, sure. And to sit down and also the mental capacity that's required to do this kind of work, I was just, I just got harder and harder as the years went by. And it was sort of like, is that called burnout? I would say that was a level of burnout sure. in the classroom. I loved it. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't make, I did, I got tremendous gratification. I always, days when I felt like, oh, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I would come back on such a high, like the adrenaline rush and the sense of satisfaction, what you think would take me through it. Right, you think. Right. Cause I loved, do you miss, do you miss just, that part of, of what you were doing? Yes. Mm-hmm. I absolutely miss it tremendously. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a communicator by nature. You know, I had a rough morning this morning with my kids. I'm on a zoom with you and I feel back to myself. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right, right. So I loved that forced part of my day where I was forced to, I hate to say forced, but you know what it's like when you, yeah, work, yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, like sometimes you're just not in the mood, but mm-hmm. I was like forced to be myself you know, forget about all the troubles and all the stresses of, you know, being a mom. It was like, now you're with your students. Now right, you're like, as soon as you, you walk love. into the classroom, you just got to drop it all at the front door and exactly. just, you just have get to. in there. And that's yeah. with any job. Right. And that's with any job. And that is how I felt with education. Yeah. But because of the burden of the home piece and listen, my husband's a doctor. There, there are nights where he's up doing his, his uh, preparation sure. and his notes till one in the morning too. Right, I don't think right. this is something completely unique to teaching. But um, I, I know that for many women who teach in the high school level, this is a big, big struggle. Mm-hmm. And I also don't want to diminish the at-home work that elementary school teachers, preschool teachers also have in terms of preparation. No, you know, this sure. is just from my experience. This yeah, was a teaching big, is, the, is a unique profession in that you really bring home a lot of work. And yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a that's a major point for sure. Yeah. It, do you do you do you think that there's ways that you know can fix those specific things? I mean, not the prep. That's that's just you yeah, know yeah. built in, but the testing and the grading and all sure. the things that or. I mean, I do think there's a way for for specifically. You know, I didn't want to work full full time in the jobs mm-hmm. that in the you know girls high school scene, there aren't full time jobs. Um, if for schools where there's morning is Hebrew and English is afternoon. So unless you teach both Lamuni Kodesh and English, then you can get a full-time job. But otherwise they are part-time jobs by nature. Right, 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 right. I would love to see even a part-time teacher get a prep period paid in the school day. I know oh, like saying, administrators part-time don't like teachers don't, don't get a prep period usually. Exactly. Right. You fly in, you fly out. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a full-time teacher, obviously you have breaks in the day that you're getting paid for that you're meant sure. to be using for prep. Right, right, right. Um, I do think that is a helpful helpful scenario. And by the way, that part-time teacher must stay in the building and must be, you know, if they don't want that, if they're like, no, sorry, I want to run and pick up my toddler or whatever. They don't want right. to stay that extra period. But I think that might be helpful to offer that as a mm. possibility. That's a very interesting suggestion. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. I'm curious, you know, this, this podcast is all about, education is all about, you know, how 
talking to educators to find out, you know, their best practices that we could bring then into the home. Did you find that your parenting changed, I guess, in any way from when you were in formal education? Um, sure. If, if, if yes, in what ways? And, you know, if not, why not? Hmm. Why do you think that wasn't the case? Yeah, it's a really, really fascinating question. I'm going to step back and say, as a human being, as a from woman, as an Ebed Hashem, my connection to spirituality and ruchnius was better when I was a teacher. And therefore you could then expand it and say, well, that's definitely going to impact your home as well. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I say this is, you know, Pesach is coming up. You need to, you're preparing for Pesach in the, for the classroom. Right. right, You know what I mean? Yeah, so no, I come, I come every year to my, to my Seder with like every yeah. year, like 30, 40 new ideas that I could, you've shared with my students already. I could share with, you know, totally. Exactly. And I think about, I know we don't want to think about Pesach right now, but I think about <laughs> previous to Durham over, you know, all of these years, I taught in a classroom for 15 years. And I, I think about now when I come to the Seder, it's very, very different than when I had ideas sure. to share because sure, it wasn't, sure. it was just part of who I was. It was like, Oh, I'm learning and I'm preparing, I'm teaching, I'm giving over. And of course I'm going to share this at my Seder. Right. So when you're, you're connected in a different way, when you're teaching now, the work that I do now, it's not like I stopped, you know, caring about the Jewish community and I, or not that, listen, hold on. You can always care about the Jewish community, no matter <laughs> right. what work you're doing professionally. For sure. For sure. But I, the work that I do now as a writer um, and in my podcast, that I, I'm still very much connected to, you know, um, Jewish communal issues. Mm-hmm. So my kids are very proud of the work that I do. Um, so I think that while I may have been teaching formally before, now they also see that like my mom, you know, like this is really something that's at a, a very important value to her. Right. So right, I feel right, right. like that still translates. It's just, it's just channeled a little bit differently now. Sure. That's very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And as a parent of five children, you have a nice mix yeah. of, of boys and girls. What do you find, you know, the differences between parenting boys versus girls? Oh, gosh. <laughs> okay. Well, it's actually interesting. I'll tell you, I'm a, I'm a father of only yeah. boys. So that's why you know, oh, I'm curious to hear. Oh, that's why you're asking this question. <laughs> I don't see clear demarcations. I do see, which might interest you, the difference between how my husband and I parent mm. are different gendered children. Yeah, I'm curious to hear. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> this is like total full disclosure. I'm going to share because I don't think it's necessarily unique to our family, but Sometimes I'll have the softer spot for the boy, and sometimes my husband will have the softer spot for the girl. Interesting. You know what I'm saying? That's interesting. Yeah, we'll each be more sympathetic to the other because we know what it was like to be a teenager, boy, Uh, teenager, girl. Interesting. Like we're less forgiving, you know, for our own child. I mean, that was you're not com- the first person that's told me that. That's that's very interesting. Okay, good because I feel I'm gonna have a vulnerability hangover. <laughs> no, 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 you're good. No, 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 <laughs> no. Um, no, no. That's so that's, interesting. I would say that's one of the you know one distinction I could make. Interesting. Okay, are there any others in terms of? I guess I'm I'm curious also. Like, yeah, I've, I've spoken to a lot of you know male educators or uh, not as many female educators, some of them. And I'm curious yeah. to hear what your thoughts are specifically in terms of, you know, raising girls and educating girls, yeah. and, you know, on that topic. Sure. This is a tough one. This is a tough one. So in terms of educating girls, there are a lot of expectations for our girls, mm-hmm. our girls in the from system really try to, I don't want to say a laissez faire approach because that, that can sound sort of like very negative. Mm-hmm. But in terms of their like from kite and their from development, I really, really try not to push. You know, I really try not to preach. When you, when you to, say when you say expectations, you're saying because of of what? Meaning you're saying just in 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 so, socially in life. What what yeah, what is that? They're they're, they're uh, 
hush religiously, hashkafically, you know, whether it's sneeze, whether it's what they're expected to do, what they're expected not to do, you know, like in a, any from child, there are more no's than there. There are a lot of no's. Sure. And we need true. to acknowledge that. Yeah. Yeah. And because there are a lot of no's, I I'm sensitive to that. And I acknowledge that. And I sometimes am in awe and wonder how our kids accept these no's right. and don't right. even question them. Like this is how their life is. Mm-hmm. And th- that would be for boys and for girls, yeah. then, right? Meaning that that for uh, that boys approach. and for girls, right, right, right. For boys for and girls. With my girls, I try not to make big issues of things, and I try to remember that being a role model ultimately is going to be the most effective in trying to portray our expectations for whether it's Cineas. I mean, Cineas is probably the biggest one of the biggest challenges for 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 girls yeah for sure and I, you know and I, I as i said i i've made mistakes you know i have a 11th grade daughter and i have my next daughter is in fifth grade and i think i was more strict with 11th grader than i am now with my my fifth grade daughter mm-hmm. um fourth grade daughter excuse me um and that, that is so much part of the parenting experience is like often we're like so gung-ho with our ideals and expectations, totally. yeah, you know with yeah. those first, <laughs> and the funny thing is i have a you know my son is in is first year in Israel. My daughter is in 11th. And then I've got a repeat boy and girl, mm. sixth grade and fourth grade. Sure. And my older kids will be like, you were so much stricter with us. You didn't let us do X, Y, Z. And this new generation, this new set of boy and girl, exactly the same age difference. Yeah. I, I am a lot more lenient. And I know I'm not the only one that has that experience. No, where totally. You realize it yeah, wasn't yeah, yeah. worth it. We didn't need to. It wasn't worth it. Turns out they think they're, they've turned out just perfectly. That's how right. they think they're doing quite well and we are ruining the younger generation. But Right, right. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Is, yeah. that, is that the advice that you would give to parents of boys, parents of girls? Like, what would be your advice? It's hard. I, you know, it's, I am not no parenting expert and I, I probably spend most of my days thinking too much about the mistakes that I make and also about the gap between the ideal and reality. I sure. just struggle with that in mm-hmm. all aspects of my life, all aspects. Yeah. Um, so totally I don't right. even feel so comfortable giving advice because I am, I'm going to be the example to your listeners of like the real mom, normal for a woman on the ground who is struggling very much. Okay. That's, re- that's relatable though. That's... <laughs> that is, this is just the reality. I, I, I know I also am hesitant to give generalized advice because I feel like every family is so unique. And every parent is so unique. So I'm, therefore, I'm no parenting coach because I couldn't sure. even give advice. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, we'll, we'll, look, but, we'll, we'll look at it from an educator's perspective. I know that you were involved. Educators, yeah. Sure. And I'm happy to share my personal experience and personal struggles of that. That would help people too. Yeah, please. No whatever, whatever you're willing yeah. to share, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So I guess from an educator's perspective, I know that you were involved in starting the Chaviva High School for girls in Cleveland. Yeah. And especially you're especially involved with creating that mission, that their mission statement, which is, you know, to empower each student to cultivate a genuine relationship with Hashem and become an educated, productive member of society. So how do you think, you know, this, how do you, do you see that happening in the school? How do you think a school can go about doing that? Really creating that genuine relationship with Hashem while yeah. also being, you know, a person who is productive member of society. Yeah. So I think that that vision statement sort of encompasses the goal, um, a general goal for Jewish education is we want to create internally strong um, children that come through our system who then also can look outwards and who can become productive members of society. We have to be strong. We have to, you know, take ownership of our Yiddishkeit and our relationship with Hashem if for we sure. are expected to be successful when we go out there in the world. Many schools don't have necessarily that vision 
that we want our graduates to be productive mm -hmm. members of society. Right, right, um, that's that, true. Right, so that that I think this this vision and you know really encapsulates both of those goals. You know, it's it's funny actually. This sort of does relate to the parenting conversation we were having before. I I think there needs to be a focus on returning to the individual student. Mm. And um, it's very hard when you have a large school and Khabiba High School is a small school right now. Nice. And yeah. they are ve they are very much able to nurture this and develop each individual student and enable them and empower them to develop their own individual relationship with Hashem. Mm. This gets harder with, you know, the more <laughs> bigger and bigger schools get where focusing on the individual and their individual development gets even more challenging. And that, right. that I think is crucial, crucial in education. But how, how do they, how does a school, even when, even when you're dealing with a smaller school, how does a school, a school. even, even in a smaller school, how does a school focus and help foster and develop that relationship with, even with one individual student? And, you know, maybe we yeah. can glean from that some, some parenting, you know? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a lofty goal and it's an unmeasurable goal. How yeah. to, how to. It's very true. It's very true. How to develop, you know, that you want your students to develop a relationship with Hashem. You know, and that's like the crime of when schools grade for davening. It's like, how in the world are you meant to assess Very such true. a thing? Yeah. Just because they're not davening doesn't mean they don't have a relationship with Hashem. We don't want. Hundred percent. Yeah. I had a friend who who went off the derech because of that. Oh, straight up, a hundred. Because exactly. he said to me, he said it's explicitly because of the grade that he got in in high school oh, for davening. I, it breaks my, it breaks my heart. Yeah. How to achieve this? I think is starting. Forget about Hashem right now. I think the goal is to start with creating or um, empowering students to feel worthy, mm -hmm. confident, um, and that they have, they are valuable, that they have what to give. Mm. Now, that happens every single day in the classroom. Sure. Okay. That happens when you have a student centered classroom. That happens when you provide voice and choice in the classroom. It's at that happens when you have a positive interaction with a teacher or where a teacher asks a you know, compliments a student about an answer or um, gives that student an opportunity to shine and use their talent in the classroom. I think it's those everyday moments of empowering students to feel whole and to feel worthy. You have to feel worthy as a human to feel that you are worthy of having a relationship with Hashem. Mm. So I think these are things that can be accomplished in a general studies classroom, in a Kodesh classroom. It doesn't yeah. matter. It's, no, it's a very having the, point. Yeah, no, it's having the larger mindset of through our educational practices, we are here to empower our students. It doesn't have to be, it's not speeches. It's not stronger than Kodesh. It's not more curriculum focusing on relationship with Hashem. It's nothing about that. And that, that's what Khabibah High School does so well is, um, you know, they are very principled in terms of their belief system and their methodology, mm -hmm. you know, and how education, you know, can most effectively be achieved. Right. And then when students are feeling that, feeling whole, feeling that their teachers support them, feeling that they're recognized, that can very beautifully, naturally, in a religious school environment, translate into having a strong relationship with Hashem, I think. Wow, that's great. That's uh, that's awesome. And you think I, I assume that that would be the same thing for parents, also parents to help their children to reach confidence and to feel good about themselves. How do you think parents can help their children yeah. feel confident like that? Yeah. Well, the example I gave is those like everyday interactions in the classroom. So it's the same thing as those everyday interactions at home. You know, sure, it's, it's sure. we're we're trying to build healthy. I mean, I use this word healthy a lot. I, I think so much about this is is children being psychologically healthy to you know within mm -hmm. the restraints. And within, I don't mean to say that a child who has diagnoses or is struggling psychologically cannot achieve this. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that our goal for all of our children, with whether they're neurodiverse, whether they're neurotypical, is to help them be as healthy as they can be. For sure. And, you know, that's why 
like davening, for example. I I understand like I'm not going to be fighting with my fourth grade daughter <laughs> if she davens or not in the morning because I understand, as I've seen with my teens. That davening is something that really develops with maturity, mm -hmm. the appreciation of davening. And if I'm going to be fighting with her on a Sunday morning, you know, because it isn't routine, you know, it isn't for yeah. us. To me, it's just, it's like not the right time. And I know I need to give this time and it's due process that that is going to come. That appreciation, is, appreciation will come when she's older. Is routine yeah. good? Yes. Do I wish that she was the kind of girl that woke up and like picked up her sitter and daven in the morning? Yes. She's not. Right. And I'm not fighting about it. Right. You know what Sometimes I mean? just taking that step back as a parent, you know, and, and them seeing you taking that step back and, you know, giving them their space is, you know, what helps earn their respect in a way that, you know, allows them to come into it in their own, in a, in a way. Right. So that's sort of my laissez-faire. That, that, that's how I would translate my laissez-faire approach. Sure. It's just like to sort of step back. Exactly. Like hands off, step back a little bit and give them their space to develop, you know, naturally. For sure. And their sure. religious and their religious development. Amazing. So, so we spoke a little bit about, you know, your, your journey a little bit into education. We spoke a little bit about journey out of it and how you were still involved in Chaviva High School. We also, something else that we mentioned before is that you are an accomplished writer and uh, you have, you have this incredible article. I really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed all of your articles in Mishpacha and specifically the one I want to focus on today is the teacher shortage, which is really, it, it sparked a fascinating and important discussion in the Chinook world. I know that uh, you know it's it's, uh, it's being speak, it's spoken a lot a lot on social media and you know different conventions. I, I know that's you know a major topic. How do you see this realistically being fixed? Right. I know we spoke. I know you spoke. You said before, like maybe giving a part time teacher an added oh, you know, prep period. Yeah. But, but this is you know it's an important topic. It's a major topic, and it is. And this is why the the Torah convention was you know if we if I had answers I, I'd be the keynote speaker over there, but I don't have the <laughs> well, answers. Well, you you were you were a speaker, so <laughs> no, that not a, not the Torah convention. I, I I would hope all of those educators put their heads together and came up with a solution. It is not an easy one. I don't know if I can give one. Sure. Um, obviously, you know what the we know what the problem is is less and less of our um, graduates are going into the field of Kinnah, and this right. is spanning across modern Orthodoxy, Shivish. It over the over the years, it it had sort of morphed where you know it was more of an issue in the modern Orthodox world, less of an issue in the right wing world, mm -hmm. and now it's. I mean, we don't have data right now. I don't have data at my fingertips, but yes, it is a problem across the board. Yeah. Um, I and if we talk about solutions, we first have to talk about problems. I think, you know, one of the I think one of the major problems is finances. Mm -hmm. I I really truly truly do. Um, right. I think. Thank God we are all conscientious people and we all want to support our families and we don't, we don't want to struggle. And these are all excellent, important values to take care of our, our, of our families um, and to, you know, to support our families. Having said that, there's absolutely no question across the board from the modern Orthodox Jewish world, the standard of, standards of living um, have, have, the bar has been raised. Yeah, um, over and, and over again. We just keep raising uh, Over it. and crazy. over again. And these are all, these are, it's all, these are all problems that are all, you know, rooted in the same issue, whether we're talking about the materialistic issues, whether we're talking about the struggle of the middle class to survive, the, the, this is just an outgrowth of that problem is yeah. that we're struggling with teacher shortage. Now, please, please, we must have this conversation, which I did not include in the article in June, which in the summer it was coming out more. And now it is all over the news that due to COVID, Everyone is struggling. All of our schools are. I know schools. every public school is also. It's crazy. Right. 
So See, on Twitter and left and right, people field. are saying, I'm leaving the field now. And like people who are yeah. like major, like longtime educators, very popular. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. So that's the new piece of the conversation now. And there are there degree programs that are shutting down because kids aren't, you know, college students are not signing up for right. education. I mean, it's a disaster. But I do think we have a unique, unique situation in that Jewish education is our future. Right. And this is our values. It's everything to us. And if we do not have people who are willing to go into this field, I, I think we have, because of our materialistic standards have, have risen, everyone, it's like, even the Colel guy can drive the Odyssey and live in a beautiful five bedroom home. Right, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, so yeah. everything has become normal for everyone. And I do think the level of mysterious nefesh that is required for teaching, and it shouldn't be that teaching should require that much. But yes, it, there's going to be a difference between a Chinuch family and a lawyer's family, typically, okay? Right, our, sure. our generation, mysterious nefesh is not a term that is in our lexicon. It's, we're not comfortable with it. Yeah. Um, so to me, I do always have felt that teachers should get paid. Why should someone, as I said, in my experience, have a get paid $15,000? I felt this 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> teachers crazy. should be getting paid more. I think that's where our energies need to be put into is, is figuring out a way that we can make this profession, you know, something that is more attractive to save our, to save the profession with that more accountability in the field, more requirements for teachers to be educated, whether it's, you know, some schools that may be a certain level of degree for other schools that might be a certain necessary teacher training, mm. professional development. It doesn't mean we're handing, you know, we're just raising salaries to get more people in the door. No, I also believe strongly that, you know, for some schools, there's the, you know, in a Rebbe situation, it's just a morning job. Can we think about the way we structure our day so that it's not just a morning job? Because I'll tell you right now, Torah Masoro at the convention, they were talking about raising teacher salaries. Um, there's also a huge discussion of the pay gap, by the way, which I mentioned in the article between Moros and Rebbe. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah. It should not exist. It shouldn't they're exist. They're putting in the same hours. No, no, no reason at all for it to exist. It's crazy. No reason at all. And certainly in the yeshiva schools, we, schools, we know that those women are often the breadwinners in their family. So it just yeah. should not exist. 100%. Forget about that for a second. I heard some of the pushback was like, what do you mean? The Rebbe is teaching from whatever, eight to 12. What? You're going to pay him $60,000 from eight to 12? Like that's yeah. not right either. Right. And I, I totally hear that. I think we need to restructure things. I know there are many schools, TA in Baltimore, where, you know, they have an A B schedule where some students learn Moody Kodesh in the morning, English in the afternoon. Right. Then others are, learn English in the morning, Hebrew in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. This is a yes. There are many schools that are going to have hashtag problems with this, but I'll tell right. you right, right now, I feel like we're in crisis mode. I feel like we need to do something. Yeah. No, I totally and, hear. And I see that, and I'll just close. I see that model as being effective because you can hire your rebellion full time. They're teaching all day, and right. get another another piece that I didn't mention in the article the struggle to find qualified general studies teachers too. Yeah. And if you're just hiring, you know, part-time English teachers to teach for you, that's going to limit, you know, your, your pool. Right. It's going to limit um, your pool of talent. There are young teachers that don't want to just teach part-time that want sure. a full days of work. Yeah. And if you can do it this way, you can also get full-time English teachers and give them jobs, you know, teaching position, teaching right. um, classes all day. Yeah. So I, I think point. we have to, I think, I think we have to pay more, but I think we also have to restructure how we're actually scheduling our, our teaching days too. Yeah, that's, to a, pay, that's a very important to point. To justify that. Yeah. Besides for that, 
besides for these specific issues? The technical there... stuff that the teachers would be interested in, but maybe people won't be. No, no, <laughs> I, I happen to, I, I love it. I think I, I yeah. agree with you strongly. If you could make one change in the education system, being that you're, you're a writer, you're, you, you, you were in the education field and now you've actually taken a step out. So you like, you have a unique perspective on it. What other changes would you make to the uh, field of Jewish education? No, it's a fabulous question. I mean, my mind is going two directions because on one hand, I'm thinking about, on a, even though I've never been an administrator, but I care very deeply about these administrative issues, you know, in terms of being able to hire better general studies teachers and offering a schedule. So on one hand, something like that would be huge. I think general right. studies is, is uh, hugely, hugely important for schools that don't feel that it's important. What is important is that you teach your children that they need to be successful in every single thing that they do. Mm. And what's important is that the skills that are developed in a English studies in a general studies classroom um, that can translate into all aspects of their life. So right, right, I, right, right. I, 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 it concerns me when that's dismissed. So, you know, for the more right wing schools, I want excellence in general studies, mm. not because it's less, not, I'm not, you know, less right, important. No. Start, that's not the conversation. Sure. Right. It's right, about right. what it's about the accountability that is created in a good classroom and the skills that are developed in a good classroom that of course are going to help them in their future lives, of course, for sure. um, and make them well-rounded individuals. So on an administrative level, that that's what I want to see, you know, um, on one hand in many schools. And just in terms of students, I want to know, I want to figure out if there's a way that we could take that small school approach, you know, where we're focusing on the individual and, and, and really bringing that into a larger school where it's the microcosm of the classroom Interesting. that can really um, enable each student to shine in their own way. Right. Really, really I, meeting I, their social and emotional needs. And educational needs. And All educational, of those right. needs Everything. can be met and their academic needs can be met in the classroom with skilled, with a skilled teacher. Mm -hmm. um, I want the best teachers in our schools. I, we all know what it's like to have had poor teachers. Yeah. I, we can't, we, it also builds grit, grit and resilience when we have bad teachers. I, I went through eight science <laughs> teachers in seventh grade, eight, literally. Okay. That's crazy. So, you know, I'm, we can't text our children in every single way, but yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I want my kids to have the best teachers available to them because um, sure. I know how powerful that is. Mm -hmm. And it's not just about obtaining information. It's about, to me, it's about the confidence building that happens in a classroom. So sure. if we can try to you know, and there's so many techniques, as I said, with a stu student-centered classroom that can really let students shine. I think the more we can do that, because the worst is when kids feel like they're just being shuttled through grade by grade, you know, one yeah. of hundreds in the system. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that that's damaging long-term, mm -hmm. you know? Very true. Very, very true. We know we mentioned in the beginning and we're mentioning a little bit just now also that, you know, the social, emotional nature, that piece. How do you think both educators and parents can do a better job of, or not just do a better job, but just in general, can can meet the social emotional needs of their children, of their, mm. of their students. I love that. Um, so I think about my own children in terms of social emotional needs. And, you know, we know our kids. Um, we know what their strengths are. We know what their weaknesses are. Like there's nobody else that knows our kids better. So I think for teachers, it's to really try and know your know your student. And if that means and I know when I was a young teacher, this was really hard for me when I got that IEP about a student, you know, when you like sort of stick it in your folder and you don't take sure. the time to study it carefully. 
that's really, really important information. Um, certainly with kids, you know, who do have an IEP, we need to be reading that. We need to be making sure we implement those accommodations in the classroom. If that kid needs preferential seating, we make sure we make the effort to do that. It takes more effort, but it is incredibly important that we are attending to their social, emotional, academic needs. Now that's easy. That's easier sometimes when you have the kid that comes in right. with the IEP. But for the mm -hmm. students that are not walking in with a piece of paper that says, "This is how I learn best," and this is what you know how how mm -hmm. I need to how you need to understand. This is my emotional makeup. We have we have to make an effort as teachers and as parents certainly to really get to know, really get to know our students. And for sure. instead of it's a completely different mindset because. And again, all this takes more work and time. <laughs> For sure. I could have spent the whole night preparing this brilliant lesson on whatever chapter of Animal Farm and walk in and all I'm caring about is me, you know, portraying this information and communicating this information. Um, or I could think, how can I take this material and use it in a way that my students can, I, first of all, identify and utilize their natural learning strength in their natural learning styles and and approaching this material for sure. so it's a completely different mindset for sure you're you're, for sure. you're you're now less worried about you know teaching over and making sure the verse and and now you're focusing more on making sure the information is going to be well received and actually be a tool to help the student get to know themselves better for sure for sure what would you say are the unique challenges of educating and parenting children in today's day and age all right. Well, I mean, at the risk of sounding cliche, but this is my biggest challenge is, is technology. And um, I think with COVID, it's just gotten so much harder um, where, as I said, I can speak for myself and also just representing a lot of moms and friends, you know, and parents who are mm -hmm. dealing with the same thing. It's like, you know, we, you know, when our kids were all home, I got my daughter, you know, my fourth grade daughter, they keep on talking about a tablet where I had very, my kids were on watch stuff, but they sat down with a laptop sure. on the couch and they had their watching time and then the computer closed and they did whatever else they wanted to do or mm -hmm. needed to do. Right. Right. And that all really, really got Everything. messed up where yeah. it was like, I needed my laptop to work and I couldn't give it to them. So now, yes, you all get devices. Mm -hmm. Everyone gets devices. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> now call it bad parenting, lack of, you know, lack on my part, you know, lack of firm boundary setting where it's, it just, turned into a bad habit and I never took it away. Mm -hmm. And now we're dealing with that, that struggle of, you know, a child having a device and right, right. when to turn it off, the, the struggle of always wanting to go to it when you're bored and there's nothing else to do versus needing to ask permission from mom, can we right. open up the laptop and have mm -hmm. watching time? It's just, it's a very technical thing and it makes a huge, huge difference. Sure. I find technology, but it's not going, it's not going away. Not I going admire out, parents. Right? I admire parents. I think it's all about boundaries and making realistic and thoughtful choices, but I will say that's been very, very hard for us. Right. Um, and I'm still trying to figure that one out. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. Yeah. I guess I'm, you know, I guess that, that challenge. So how do you, you know, besides for the having boundaries, um, you know, with all of your experience as an educator, I guess not as much the challenge of technology, but the, you know, dealing with challenging students or challenging children, uh, that's, a, you know, a, a little bit of a different perspective. How, what, you know, what, what, what would you say? you know, is the, is the right approach for that? Yeah. So this is important to me. Um, this has become more important to me as I've had kids in the system, you know, kids going, you know, growing up and going through elementary school and high school where, um, 
you know, I see it with my own ch- children. Like I have one child who is an on, who is on an IEP mm-hmm. and it just has given me a lot more sensitivity mm-hmm. that behavior, right. behavior is really an expression of something. Um, behavior really, if a teacher takes the time and it's time and it's emotional energy, but to look at the behavior and see what, what is this behavior about? What is this student communicating? Right. Why mm-hmm. is this happening? Why? how can I try to understand why this is happening? Mm. Um, so that, as I said, I've, I've 22 year old student, a teacher. I didn't know that. I mm. didn't understand that. Right. You know, my whole approach to behavior has changed as I've had children. Um, and as I've had children growing up through the system. So if I, you know, now, if I were back in a classroom now, and certainly the last bunch of years in my own teaching experience, I think I, I was much more aware of this, you know, it's like, it's, it's taking that, that time. And as I said, that effort to try to evaluate and try to understand the behavior and in terms of dealing with the student, to me, it's all about being curious. Mm -hmm. It's less, our natural reaction is to to react and respond to the behavior. Right. Um, Sometimes we take the behavior personally. Mm -hmm. And once you go down that road, you, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Yeah. Cannot take it personally. It is hard because it requires a lot of Mm self-control and a lot of control of emotions. But if the teacher can approach a behavior in a student with a sense of curiosity, um, asking questions, um, trying their best to deal with it outside of the classroom whenever possible, um, whether it's creating a relationship with that child where the teacher gives cues to that student when that student is, you know, displaying a certain behavior. Obviously there are times where a child must leave a classroom. I'm not talking about situations like that, but um, you know, which book is helpful about this is the love and logic series. Mm. Um, That, that's, that really, that also helped me tremendously. And for all teachers, it's just try to keep reading and try to keep educating yourself is is always really important. That's very important for sure. But yeah, but that word of being curious and like, the, you're going to get the most information about that negative behavior from the child and the student himself. Yeah. So you yeah. want to try and build a relationship with that child where, where you're working together on whatever the problem is and you are their advocate and their supporter and trying to For sure. deal with whatever negative behavior you're seeing. Yeah. That's, and that's such great parenting advice also, because being curious about your children, when they're, when they're going through yeah. something or when they're just, even when they're reacting to something, you just being curious and saying, you know, help me understand what's going on. Yeah. You know, what, what's, what's, going, what's on? going through your head? Like, what are you feeling? You know, that that's, right. that's really, that's a very strong piece of advice. You, you see, you said you didn't it. want to give advice, but there you go. That's I, <laughs> Well, but I didn't really apply it this morning when we're flying out of the house and one <laughs> child is having a meltdown and you don't really have that mental capacity hard, or time to hard. sit down and be like, yeah. so what's going on with you? <laughs> but I will say, I will say, that yeah, it doesn't take much time to say something like that. Yeah. And it actually can de- de-escalate the very chaotic, stressful, lack of time situation when we approach things from a more curious, calmer place. Totally. Um, because if the child feels more supported, the more we respond respond and react, the worse we're making it. So why why even bother? Right. You know, it doesn't even help. That's a great point. It's very true. Very, yeah. very true. What would you say? You know, you mentioned before that, you know, when your daughter doesn't want to necessarily dive in and you know, you've you've taken a more lax approach. To, you know, over the years, then, you know, to, to, to take a step back, but what would you say is a way yeah. that we can make Tefillah more accessible, something that they're, they, they don't want to not, you know, they don't want to miss it. They, they want to engage in it. How, what's, what, what is, how do we yeah. make Tefillah? I, you know, for many, many years, I, I did the davening at Beth Tefillah, seventh and eighth grade girls, mm-hmm. eight o'clock in the morning. I was sure. like the, you know, the davening leader. 
Um, and these, by the way, just it's interesting. These were not religious girls, so they were not coming. The, at at that, that time, the school has definitely has more Shomer Shabbos families. But at that time, I had maybe had like one Shomer Shabbos student in the whole class. So yeah, I do have experience. I can't say I have any secrets from my experience. I'm going to now sort of shift back to the parenting to answer that question. Sure. You know, my, my, my son who's Shana Olive this year, he called me and it's very, it's really sweet. He's like, is it okay? I want to buy interlinear sitter, you know, and obviously the kids, he's on a budget. So he wanted to know if it was okay. I'm like, oh yes. Like <laughs> you want to buy a safer, a sitter, <laughs> there course, you go. Please. Take, take the credit card, you know, I have a little cynical view about davening. Honestly, davening for me in high school was like my mitzvah. Like I really connected to it. Mm -hmm. I think it's very, very personal. I think it really depends on the student, their personality, for my son, when he told, like, he's like now interested at 18 years old and understanding the words that he's been saying mm. every single day throughout school since kindergarten. Right, right. And I, I, I really think with Tefila, there is an element of maturity. And I think it's still important to create routine and davening and this Tefilos and the songs and all that is instrumentally important. We still need to do that. Mm -hmm. I think our expectations are a little high that davening is going to be a meaningful experience for the average eighth grader and quite possibly for the 10th grader. I, I also remember a high schooler, you know, I was, as I mentioned, in CSY, I remember looking at other girls like davening with Kavana and I, I thought it was so beautiful and I would like try to emulate them. What's going on there? That's peer pressure, a right. good peer pressure. Yeah, but yeah. like, you know, it's like that girl has like, like you sort of want what she has and you think it. I mean, it's funny. It's wonderful when there's religious peer pressure. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's not Lishma, but it could lead to. So I, I don't think I had real Lishma motives in mm -hmm. high school for davening. So, so what can be done in the meantime, then? Meaning until they and, get to In the point. meantime, yeah. In the meantime, we have to do it. We have to. I do think, again, I would love if there was some, some type of data in terms of like courses that are classes that are offered, like, um, you know, Ian classes about understanding the words of tefillah. I know my daughter has a class like that in high school, you know, really breaking down the tefillahs and translating them and, and ascribing more meaning to them. Right. I think that is important. I think that that students should be taught formally mm -hmm. what they are saying. I think we need to do, we need to educate them and we need to do that. We need to make every effort to make davening more of a positive experience. But I don't think we should be disappointed as educators and even as parents if right. our, our, our students are not really tapping into it because I think it's comes with maturity. And guess what? We know as adults, it is a constant struggle. Sorry. Yeah, it is. It's true. 100%. <laughs> our own davening is hard. Yeah, and our kids 100%. also maybe see, maybe see that with us too. We may right. not be the perfect role models. Totally. I think it's a constant effort. And, sure. and we shouldn't give up. We, we, we must do, we must make our efforts in high, and, you know, in high school, we should definitely try our best to make it meaningful for our students, but maybe for just sure. lower the expectations a little. That's a great point. That's a great point. Are there any practices in your home that you've learned or I guess used from your, you know, your role over the years in, in formal education or even out of formal education in, in writing or whatever, you know, and any of those roles? Yeah. I think our family, like I promise our family on, you know, a family that's willing to talk about issues, you know, that's something that's always very important to me is not sweeping things under the rug. And, you know, like you have a question about something, let's talk about it. And I've, I definitely have tried and that, that's, that was my approach as an educator mm -hmm. and I've definitely, it's just who I am. So it's not like right, I'm trying right. so much. It's just, you know, that's just going to naturally overflow in our home. That's great. So listen, we have, a, we, we all lead crazy lives. Certainly, you know, my husband is not home a lot. 
um, as a doctor, certainly during COVID, it hasn't been any easier. <laughs> sure. Oh my gosh. But wow. um, oh my gosh. But yeah, that it's that like Friday night environment where we are actually first time at the table, you know, all week. No, we do not sit down and have weekly dinners. I know mm-hmm. the statistics are against us. That is not a healthy <laughs> thing, <laughs> but it's just the reality. Um, but yeah, when we do sit down as a family Friday night, it's like, you know, whatever, whatever is on their minds, whatever, you know, the issues are, they know that our home is a place that we can try to have a discussion about it, that they're, that it's a safe place to share feelings mm, and great. that we could try to uh, tackle and address, address issues. That's great. Wow. That's very powerful. What, how did you create that like environment where they, where they want to share? I think it's because I'll talk about stuff. As I said, it's just part of who I am. Uh-huh. So I can't like really contain that. So, or my husband and I also were big talk like I I love hearing his perspective I'll ask him mm-hmm. we have to be careful of course what we're talking about what's in the news sure, sure. also it's also tricky when you have a variety of ages of children right, um and as right. I said I've got like literally two different generations yeah. so sometimes like especially with like the whatever was the height of COVID or it was the elections you know I had two teenagers that were like, really talk you know really we're having these like intense conversations and then the younger ones are sort of sitting there like cracking up we're not always going to address every child's need in that conversation. It's not always going to be perfectly designed for every single child when you have a whole range. I think it's not a bad thing that the younger kids are hearing the discussions, you know? For sure. Um, sure. So it just, I think it's just sort of, sort of happens natural, as I said, because I'll be talking to my husband and the kids will chime in. And then it just, you know, now are there Shabbos meals that we're completely exhausted and Mm, we just need to get through the meal and we're falling asleep at the table? Yes. I do not. I do not want to create this false image of perfection. You're very real. I I love how genuine you are. Because I can't, I I, I can't, I I have plenty of struggles, so I just can't, I can't um, put up a normal from woman. There you go. Normal. That's that's my brand. That's my (laughs) brand. Um, But I, I, and I think that this is actually just an important point in general like we're always trying to do things better and there are always ways we can improve. It's like, oh, we should be reading a Devar Torah every single Shabbos from the Sefer. There's some families that do that and it's, they learn halacha. And yes, there are ways we can always improve and there are new ideas that we can implement. But I do think like sometimes we just need to go back to be like, okay, well, like what works for me? You know, like I can try to do that and it may work or it may be forced, but like, who am I? What are the strengths I bring to the table as a parent? What feels natural? What feels confident? What for are sure. my kids like? What's going to work for us? And like, sometimes like stop with all the cute initiatives and advice and <laughs> totally. how to make things better. Cause it's never ending. Everything could always be better. As right. I said, that constant, that constant struggle of like the struggle of the ideal versus the real. And also don't underestimate the small things that you do. It could be very, very powerful in terms of the messaging you give to your kids. That's a great point. That's a really, really great point. I couldn't have a conversation with you without bringing yeah. up the, you know, hashtag my orthodox life, that, this <laughs> incredible moment that you, you, you did an amazing job of bringing awareness to such an important topic. And I'm, I'm curious, I mean, I'm curious what your goals were, but I'm also curious if your goals have been met in this. Uh, well, I love that question. And I have spoken about it um, for, you know, on a couple of podcasts. I'm actually speaking at it at a women's conference, which I'm very excited about in mm. Chicago in February. Nice. So it's still a conversation and I'm so thrilled that you're bringing it up again. And never have I really been asked this, this question about like, do I feel like my goals have been met? Mm. It's so, so it was a fascinating time. Um, I don't know if like a little bit of background. Um, yeah. For the, for the listeners necessary. who don't necessarily know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so basically there's a show on Netflix that came out um, and really what do I want to say? 
<laughs> it's so funny. You know, when you approach something months, months later, it's mm -hmm. very different than when yeah. you're in the middle of it. Um, but essentially made a lot of claims and generalizations um, and purported a lot of stereotypes that are very, very damaging about Orthodox women. Right. And in terms of my goal, and that is so crucial here, is my goal really was not, oh, this is a PR moment for us. Right. Because it ended up turning into that because it got big and yes like usa today called me and did an interview really wow. for an article cool. with, with me and julia hart like we were both in the art you know really wow. like it turned, that's very cool there was a tremendous a lot of media coverage international media coverage secular press as well as jewish press about about this and you know but in terms of that was never the goal mm -hmm. the goal honestly is i i've moved more into the field i guess of chizuk um, now out of, you know, more into adult education, um, I was involved in, in starting this Hizik retreat here in Cleveland. We have, mm -hmm. you know, retreat for from women and we have programming and, you know, that I, I think it's incredibly important that our from women are nurtured and inspired and connected because often we stop nurturing ourselves spiritually once right, we move right. into married role. For sure. Um, and, it, and it's, you know, having children also can be uh, difficult for women to stay connected. So that that's the area that I'm in. So that's mm -hmm. how I approach things. And when I saw that the show came out and I'm hearing stories of women watching it and I'm hearing stories of teenagers who are watching this, right. who binged it. And I heard this one story of these from teenage girls who turn around after they watch it and said, hmm, well, maybe wearing pants isn't so bad. Mm. That to me is a problem. That's right. a problem. You're like, I need to speak up. This is, this is, you know. Yeah. So I'm not speaking up because I think Netflix is going to hear me right. or because, um, you know, we're going to fight media misrepresentation right. like formally. Sure. I mean, who in the world would ever think that would happen? Like, that's <laughs> not why I'm doing this. I right. was doing it because I felt that for a woman needed a response and we, we could take, this could be a disaster for us, or this actually could be an opportunity for us to strengthen ourselves and remind ourselves all of the beauties and all the things we do love about being from women. Mm. So that's what it did is it gave women who were very frustrated about the show and very upset when they heard these blatant generalization that Orthodox women are fundamentalist baby making machines who have no autonomy and who um, only the only decision making they can make is within with the permission of their husbands. Like these just like ridiculous claims. Right, right. right. And they were so angry. This is why this took off is because there was there, there was so an many, appetite. There was yeah, this, right. Yeah, there was a trigger. There was a stimulus here, and women didn't know what they could do about this, and were so upset. And it was like, wait, here's your chance. You have a social media platform. Post my Orthodox life. Tell me about your story as an Orthodox woman. Yeah. Does this mean that we are whitewashing problems? No. <laughs> Does this mean that you could write a post saying this is what I love about Orthodoxy and this is my struggles? Yes. I am not one to white. I have my own struggles. We all have our struggles, and that that's where this campaign sort of developed. You know where you know, and it's a different nuances where there's some backlash and, you know, it's just interesting to see you can, you can share whatever it is that you want to share, but you share your story. That's the point. Share your story. For sure. And there were women who said, I am just a lurker on social media who never posted that were like, I'm posting with my picture and my story <laughs> right. because I have to right. like, yeah. no, I saw that. I saw and, it all over. It's amazing. It was it really, yeah. you, you did an incredible thing. Really. You really uh, sparked an amazing, amazing movement. And, uh, Yes, you. To you. And just, yeah. I just want to give a shout out to the woman of literally all stripes representing all segments of orthodoxy who posted 
know, there's a beautiful, what you can do on Instagram, if you just like type up the hashtag, my orthodox life, you can, you'll see pages and pages or thousands of posts from LinkedIn to Facebook everywhere. Sure. And they're accompanied with, the, with their pictures. And you, and there was one, I took a screenshot, just a page of, you know, collection of photos from all the various posts. And you had a woman in a tank top, hashtag my orthodox life that is orthodox and identifies yeah. as orthodox That's and wrote awesome. about why she's proud to be a religious woman next to a Hasidish lady with eight children with her post about why she's proud to be a mother of eight children. You know, that yeah. to me is that, that there, to see that visual was very powerful to me. It's really, really powerful. Well, I want to say a major thank you to you for all of your time and I love how genuine and how real you are. I'm, and like you said, that's you, but it, it, it was amazing <laughs> to, to have this conversation with you and for, for all of us educators to hear that, to hear that genuineness and to hear all these really amazing approaches, that curiosity that, that, that you spoke about when approaching children, really, really so helpful and uh, really thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. And you're doing amazing work with this podcast. I don't know how you balance all of your roles <laughs> because I keep seeing new episodes coming out. Baruch Hashem. So Baruch really Hashem. a wonderful resource for the, for the Orthodox community. And thank beyond. you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. All right. Have thank a great you. day. Thank you. You too. This episode really contains so many amazing nuggets. It's going to be hard to recap them all here. But just to mention a few, I loved the idea of approaching students and children with curiosity. My father, who is an expert educator, always, always tells me that whenever children is acting out, they're just trying to communicate something to us because no children want to be bad. And it's something that's so important for us to keep in mind. And if we take this approach of curiosity with our children and with our students, we will be able to tune our ears to hear what they're trying to communicate to us, which is, it's, it's, just, it's, it's really, it's a game changer. It's a real game changer. I found her take on why the field of Jewish education is struggling so much in terms of attracting and keeping educators to be so spot on. And it's really, it's such a shame. It's, it's a real shame that our educators, who we entrust with the education of our children, something which should be such a priority, it's the continuation of Judaism, of Chinuch, is not prioritized in terms of the salaries of our educators, which makes it a field that is hard to justify, especially since it is a field which I don't think is this is really, it, this is such an underrated fact. It's not known how much being a teacher really requires extra work outside of school hours, outside of school time, much more sometimes than other jobs do. And it's really, it's just, it's not known. And therefore people have a hard time understanding and relating to the fact of like, oh, well, you know, you're, you work less hours and therefore your salary should be less. But people have a hard time understanding that. Um, people think that also a lot of the time about t teachers in summers, but a lot of a lot of people don't realize that because of the fact that teachers are making less, they have to take on all these extra jobs. So that's you know it's something you know a really important thing to keep in mind as well. And I want to just say I apologize for the long delay in between episodes. Baruch Hashem, the summer has been a lot busier than expected between being a program director in a camp, family simcha, and keeping up with many of my other obligations. And the editing has been taking longer than expected. But we are back. We are back. Jeducation is back. And we're looking forward to the next episode with the famous D-Bash. You heard it. David Bashevkin. Looking forward to another amazing episode. Have a great week.